Hello and welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. Today's episode is about the Fusebox Festival in Austin, Texas. Enjoy the show. We're going to talk about Fusebox, a theater festival in Austin, Texas. It occurs every April and they are in their 12th year this year. You've attended it before, is that right? Yeah, I was there in the 2012 season as well. So, Okay, cool. This is my first year attending. We usually start with a round of introductions. So I'll go first. My name's Lindsay. I am the host at Maximu. And you are Jeremy. Who are you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm Jeremy Barker. Um, I'm a performance critic based in New York. Um, for many years, I was the editor of culturebot.org. Now I freelance. Uh, I also serve as the editor of Chance Magazine, which is a large format uh, photo magazine given over to theater and performance design. And on, to- on top of all that, I work as a dramaturg with a theater company called Sister Sylvester. Cool. We've seen some Sister Sylvester work here on the podcast. Very nice. Cool. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about Fusebox, uh, like I mentioned, a uh, festival in Austin, Texas. Artistic director Ron Berry. It is an interdisciplinary art and performance bonanza. Uh, formerly, it was scheduled over a two-week period, but this year, for the first time, they shrunk it down and scheduled all this stuff. There are artistic panels and performances and installation, visual art, and they put it all in five days. Um, so it was 60 events over this five-day period at 24 different venues across the city of Austin. Now, this being my first time to Austin, I did not appreciate the vast amount of space that would need to be covered between events. I looked at it on a map, but didn't really check out the scale. It just all looked like it was clustered downtown. But in fact, that was totally wrong. And a car was absolutely necessary to get from place to place. Or Uber. I discovered that Uber is incredibly cheap in Fusebox, though, uh, or in Austin, though I have to admit I did run up probably like $100 in Uber charges over five days. But... You know, yes. Um, And actually, like, thinking forward, if I'm ever involved there again, I'm going to hopefully share some uh, uh, things I've learned about getting from venue to venue and, like, how to sort of curate your own experience to minimize the amount of time you have to travel. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. It's a challenge. And in such a short period of time, you're running around a lot. Yes, I was surprised by that. Um, Luckily, my brother-in-law let me borrow his car on Saturday, so I was able to get to a lot of stuff. But... Um, very different than my experience at festivals in Edinburgh or here, even here in New York, where obviously we have tremendous tr- public transportation. Yeah. And the lack of public transportation in Austin is its own source of humor integrated, indeed, into some of the shows that I saw. Yeah. So um, they do a pretty good job of curating this festival. There are local, national, and international artists, um, about a third, a third, a third each. And exceptionally all of the events are free which i thought was amazing yeah that started i think three years ago um and i think ron was sort of driven by this desire to open up the art and make it available and and i think that there's always been a fear 
on the part of programmers about creating free events, particularly if they're ticketed. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a real challenge if people don't show because, you know, they haven't paid money. So what happens if they don't show up? And I think that the festival, you know, I remember talking with Ron about it like three years ago when he was first proposing it. And I think their experience has been actually quite good mm-hmm. uh, with it. You know, I think that they have a, a website and if you don't show up like more than twice, all of a sudden they'll inform you that the rest of your tickets have been released. But it's really interesting. It's really I actually really quite like that model. Um, and I think, you know, I think the River to River Festival here in New York does something similar. Like they, uh, my friend Andy Horwitz, mm-hmm. um, who I worked with at CultureBot, did this, um, used to curate that festival. And I believe they use the same model, too, where you sign up online to get a ticket and then there's certain, you know, restrictions around it. But, yeah. Yes, if you don't show, I only know this third hand. I didn't have this experience because I did show up for all my reservations. You get a sort of, a nasty email saying you yeah. have one one strike this is a two strike regime yeah yeah <laughs> if you don't show up your tickets will be released which you have to have something like that because there's people just don't really respect free events in the same way they do when they've handed over cash money for something yeah so i was glad to see that they had some kind of system to enforce that because i was a little worried about that going in and you saw a little bit of griping on social media about people who felt like the system didn't work out very well, but all things considered it worked out as well as it could. Like they have the best enforcement mechanism I can think of if you're going to offer free tickets. Yeah. Yeah. So you also ran a project there where you worked with uh, writers to create criticism and editorial work around the festival. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. So um, Fusebox Festival, like many festivals and arts organizations uh, working in the contemporary space, you know, they struggle with they, they understand that there's an importance to creating dialogue around the work. And so many of them, and I've seen this in Seattle and Portland, uh, Austin, and also in New York, they're interested in helping to further w- what I guess you can call criticism, making air quotes here. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, a dearth of critics left working at newspapers. Often those critics aren't as versed and familiar with the sort of hybrid or multidisciplinary work that's showcased at Fusebox. So it, it, it's sort of doing two things at once. Um, the, the, the institution's trying to create writing around the work, and through that, they're trying to provide a mechanism for their audiences to engage in work that maybe um, isn't as familiar as, say, a Shakespeare play or, or more traditional drama or opera or anything like that. And so um, this year I went down to Austin, the the festival invited me down, and there was a couple different uh, initiatives they had, uh, mostly working with the University of Texas's um, uh, PPP, uh, Performance as Public Practice, I think is what the graduate program is called. It's basically a form of performance studies. So there's about 20 writers, mainly from that program, who are working directly with the festival. uh, to document, you know, they were assigned specific shows. They would do sort of an interview preview of a show um, and then respond to another show. I came down, and what I was trying to do, and it's it's related to some of the things I've done in New York here um, as well during festival season in January, is to sort of live blog it. I treat I try to treat the festival as an event. Um, the, the metaphor I've often used, it's really apparent to people right now, is the journalist covering a political campaign. 
So instead of trying to write these very long uh, explications of the work and these, these long essays or feature articles, I try and keep it short and sweet and really uh, focus on um, hopefully engaging readers and encouraging interest in the work because I think the value of that sort of short form question-based response during a festival and also reporting on what I hear people talking about and sharing, you know, their experiences, hopefully that excites the audiences and they'll get to know about, you know, a specific show that they might otherwise have missed. Or, you know, I mean, uh, I'm a specialist in this sort of work. So there were many of the artists down there at that festival. I had seen their work before, mm-hmm. Okuya Apakwasili or, or Big Dance Theater. Um, I'd never heard of Dickie Bo before. And that was one of the that was the the performance I got to see there. I don't think it's ever been to New York. I hope it gets to come to New York now. But that was the sort of thing like, oh, this is exactly what we need to share. Like, if you have the chance, go see this performance because it totally caught me off guard. I had no context for it, and I thought it was a remarkable piece. So, and and I, in terms of what I was doing at the festival, I only worked with one or two other writers who had sort of signed on and agreed to do this short form writing with me. So it was an experiment, you know, the the festival itself managed the long form, we did the short form, we're all sort of combining it together in the aftermath. Well, let's talk about the Dickie Bo performance called Unplugged. Dickie Bo Unplugged. Yes. Um, do you want to describe the show? Well, uh, from what I would take from the show, Dickie Bo is um, a classically trained actor who has been exploring and sort of deconstructing drag and lip sync performance. So it begins um, with him lip syncing, and I'm forgetting the name of the comedian he was imitating there, though it's come up a number of times recently. Um, It's a comedian who became famous for doing a radio show in the late 1960s in Britain, and he's one of the first... He's generally regarded that character on the show as one of the first... um, a sort of openly gay or clearly gay um, characters in British media. And so it was really important. And, and for instance, if anyone has seen on social media these these articles about Polari, the sort of secret gay lingo language in the UK, um, free, like frequently uh, uh, he comes up. So the Dickie Bo's performance begins with him simply lip syncing to an interview with this comedian from the 60s or 70s. Um, then he stops and he sort of gives you that background and he, Dickie Bo just speaks to you directly in his own voice on stage. And he also explains like how he became interested in drag and the piece essentially becomes an exploration of what it means to claim the voice of another through lip syncing. And whereas a lot of drag performances, you know, about celebrity and fame and pop stardom and everything else, he goes in this very fascinating direction with it. Very much so relates it to not only a political discussion he brings in, he at one point lip syncs a, a, a talk back section from Peter Sellers, the director, um, but he really talks about the myth of Echo and Narcissus. He does a very comic Narcissus, which is based on like a really creepy sort of pickup artist guy leaving uh, these aggressive voicemails on a woman's answering machine. But the ending of it, which simply blew me away, was he sort of talks about, you know, within the myth of narcissus everyone knows the narcissus part where it's the guy who is so beautiful that he falls in love with his own reflection and dies but as dickie bo points out we often forget about the other 
character in the story who's Echo, who thinks she's a beautiful nymph, and I think Hero or someone cursed her so that she can only repeat back what she hears. And she's in love with Narcissus, but because she can't speak to him, she has to watch him die. This is beautiful, very sad story, but what Dickie Bo does with it is he finds um, a voice uh, uh, to lip sync to to become his echo, and as he he presented it, it was based on it. Basically, the 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 audio he lip syncs that section to, which is the end of the show, was a tape. It's basically someone had recorded an audio letter. The the sender is not known because it was like found on a train. I think he said, and then mm-hmm. someone uploaded it to the internet. But it's this very beautiful, very simple, um, banal love letter where this woman is speaking to an absent lover, telling, you know, talking about these banal uh, aspects of what's been going on in her life, which you have no context for. You don't understand, but you get how quotidian they are. And then she starts talking about her emotional and sexual longing for this partner, and she basically masturbates on the tape. And then ends in this heartbreaking fashion by saying, like, something to the effect of, I, it's been so long, I don't know if we're ever going to see one another again. And Dickie Bo not only lip syncs this as a sort of character on stage, but he incorporates a video that he had shot by a doctor where a camera was inserted down his throat into the voice box and recording. And so during the recording of that, he actually spoke the words. So you see his body on stage as he lip syncs the, this audio, you hear the audio recording of the original person doing it. And you see a video of his voice box as he intonates these words. And I don't know, it was, it was an overwhelming moment. It was beautiful. Um, and I, I think that many people in the audience uh, left, the performance with uh, not dry eyes. It, it was a truly incredible moment. I was so pleased to see that. One of the things that was interesting about his performance is his explicit discussion of appropriating another person's both the physical part of them because the he does two recordings, one of Echo and one of Narcissus. Yeah. And he has more reticence about the recording of echo because it is very personal and sad in a way yeah and he talks about his own dilemma and whether to adopt it and put it into his show and what did he what was he taking by doing that and what did he owe the original person who recorded this and lost it let's presume on Mm -hmm. a train and i really really thought that was I really, really appreciated him addressing that issue specifically because it is more and more common in performance for people to use this kind of, let's call it found footage or found yeah. recordings or found possessions. I mean, that's all that's been a long time practice in the visual arts world, but I think it's become to a lot of prominence in the performance art world. Um, and I was just, re- even though he ultimately just, took it right he didn't he has no means of getting permission he just found this thing um um i I so appreciated him addressing that issue head on because i see it so often in performance and it makes me really uh uncomfortable at times yeah and i think that i i think that he he also within the piece draws um it's not just the 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 politics of taking an unknown person's or a, a quote unquote nobody, right? Like the, the identity of that person 
part of the reason that was so powerful was, like I mentioned, normally drag is about imitating the famous and the mm -hmm. glamour and everything else. Um, but he also talks about the, the politics of that. I mean, he, he's come to prominence as a lip-syncing drag performer doing shows on Judy Garland and maybe one other person I'm forgetting. But, I mean, he also talks about creating his piece based on Judy Garland's diaries. And so I think that what's interesting is that he sees, you know, that appropriation, that 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 form in a way that he encouraged me to look at uh, uh, drag and lip syncing in a way that I hadn't really thought about before, because he really does make it, you know, about the person rather than the image, right? Like drag, I think, is normally um, this very sort of campy imitation, and his his work is really dispensing with camp and trying to get towards something deeper. And so I was really interested in the, the sort of politics of it overall. And, you know, he does relate that back to the sort of democratic theatrical impulse, too, through the bit with Peter Sellers, yes. who's talking about... You know how um, in 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 Athens, in ancient Athens, you know the the part of the, the the Commonwealth being part of the Commonwealth was to attend the festival of Dionysus and experience that sort of shared um, theatrical presentation about all of our experience, which is I think why he chooses a nobody to to do his echo with, right? It's not about celebrating like it's 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 like celebrating the banality of, of most of our lives, right? Like, and, and, and I think I haven't seen the Judy Garland piece, but I suspect that what he does with his Judy Garland show is he humanizes her through this thing rather than treating her as this, you know, glamorous, you know, sort of, um, uh, queer icon who's, um, as much a production of the tabloids as, um, uh, a real person. I think he was going for the real person because that's what he talks about, getting access to the diaries, right. working with this very personal material. Right. The thing, his drag performance, the way he described it, he did not perform an excerpt from that piece, but he described it as being showing add, the person behind the performer. Yeah. And I should add, I understand, and I really feel bad that I missed it. I guess that was here. Uh, at Abrams Arts Center, the, the Judy Garland performance he did, it, it was part of the Queer uh, New York International Arts Festival at Abrams in September or October of last year. And I was deep in tech, and I didn't go to see any of it. So I was really sad to miss it. And maybe, you know, some listener actually did get a chance to see it. I'd be very curious to know what it was like. Yes. So did you see story number one at the I, festival? I did. Okay. So I, I find these two pieces to be in an interesting conversation with one another. Yeah. Um, story number one is by two artists, Rachel Mars, who is a British performer, and Greg Wohead, who is a, uh, who's from Texas originally, but um, is now based in the UK. And this performance... Um, I think we should just talk about what it is and not worry about spoilers because I yeah. don't think that even if we gave you the play-by-play-by-play -play -play of this performance, you really can appreciate it unless you're in the room experiencing it. So I'm yeah. not going to worry about that. Um, but it does start in a rather surprising way, which is that you sit down to attend a piece of live performance at a performance festival celebrating live time-based art. And... Um, on the screen comes a, an episode of a reality TV show. From, Come dine with me. Yes, from the UK where four people compete by making one another dinner. Right. And it starts and you watch it and you think, okay, this is a quirky beginning. 
and then it goes on. You get to that on. first commercial break, and you <laughs> yeah. think they're going to cut, and you're going to have performance, yep. and it doesn't. But and then nope. the second commercial break, and, and it still doesn't. And the third, doesn't. you see the entire episode. Which, Aside from the last 30 seconds. They stop from, at yes. 30 seconds, and it's this is, this is an hour-long. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> right. It's, like a, it's, it's an hour-long, right? With, commercial, with commercials, it would be an hour-long block. So it's like 40, 45 minutes. Is it really that long? Yeah. I, I checked my phone, and right when they got to the end, it was 44 minutes past the hour and i know they started a couple minutes late but okay. yeah yeah so okay. if it started at two the video segment only ended at 244 okay <laughs> i would have guessed 30 minutes i mean i would have guessed an eternity actually is how long that thing lasted but um anyway okay so you you experienced that and i don't know it sounds like we attended different performances but that was definitely when the first group of people left the performances about midway through that <laughs> um and and then what? And, and I'm not going to do this necessarily chronologically, but then what happens is uh, the two performers come on stage and they proceed to spin these tales, uh, fictional tales about uh, each one of the four contestants in the show, imagining what happens to them after the show has taken place. Yes, yeah. and uh, some of the tales are sad. Some are quite sexual and some are quite violent and it was during those performances that more people left the performance than i was at yes um and then of course there are dance breaks because this is that kind of art and there are some personal revelations shared sort of one by the other performer Right. I felt like what they what they did is that both of them are also writers. So I mm-hmm. feel like they split. Right. So the, there's four characters on the TV show. I feel like each one of them wrote two of the narratives. Um, the other one would have to serve as so. So if they had written one, they would be the primary narrator for it. And the other one would have to offer the secondary line. So there's never more than two people talking in a given narrative, imagining what happens to these people. And so it was like task based. Right. They each created two of the, the narratives about what happened to these people. And then those dance breaks are actually tasks they assign to one another on mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. So basically those start by um, there's a sort of dance area that's delineated by lighting on the floor. The person who has to perform it stands there. The other person who they know one another, they've known one another for a while, I gather. The other person will stand there and say something very personal to them. And given how much they were giggling, I suspect that it's sort of they don't know exactly what it is. Like Exactly. It, and yeah. in, at the performance I was at, um, actually, um, Rachel, I think, started her piece by implying that they had both just come up with their stories same day because mm. they had both... Um, they had a similar theme to them and it seemed like what were, what were the prompts they gave one another? Um, Do you remember? They were about, um, their grandmothers. Their, their, uh, uh, Rachel's was about her grandmother and Greg's was about his grandfather. So when I saw it, Rachel, uh, Greg told Rachel, her task was to perform. She and her partner have just broken up, um, because her partner wanted to have a kid and she didn't want to have one. So they're about right. So they so what she had to perform as a movement sequence to I forget what pop song it was, but was like, this is the last time you're in the apartment together because you have to turn over the keys and you're never going to see your partner again. And what Rachel gave to Greg was that he was 
much larger in high school and he was sort of um, felt like a social outcast and a nerd. And now he's successful. And all of those people who have teased him have now been invited over to his parents' house in Dallas or Houston or wherever he's from. And uh, he has to show them how awesome he's become. So those were the two tasks. And and they were laughing. You know, Greg was laughing as Rachel was talking about his teenage years. And she was certainly awkward. God only knows if, like, there was some discussion she actually had with her partner about having kids. You know, you never know. Mm -hmm. But it was was clearly this process of creating tasks for one another. Um, Yeah. Yeah, a dance based on some kind of narrative, fictional or not, we don't know. I mean, I think that's actually... A big underlying theme here in yeah. this performance is the unreliable narrator and not knowing what is truth and fiction and really feeling unstable throughout this performance, kicked off by that 30 to 45 minute video and then going into these very intense narratives, fictional narratives about the characters in that show, then these personal stories and dance breaks, which even though the ones I had were more about uh, sort of aging grandparents on both sides um, were pretty funny yeah, um, yeah, and upbeat, you know, <laughs> dance music. And then it closes with them reading what I presumed at the time and continue to presume was actual communications, correspondence with the uh, individuals in the reality television show and explaining to them that they had intended to incorporate their episode of the reality TV show into a performance they were doing and seeking some additional information and also inviting them to participate if they wished. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately pursuing one of them to his uh, open-to-the-public farm. (laughs) Right? There's video of them at his farm. All right, so... So, I left this performance very unsettled i'm sure as intended by the performers and creators yeah and having had the following day seeing the dicky bow performance where he so carefully and caringly considers whether to incorporate an actual human being into his performance and not really having seen the same care taken by Rachel and Greg I was sort of left I don't know uh, uh, sort of adrift in how to consider and interpret this piece yeah I mean I enjoyed the piece I'm not I, I, I would say that overall as enjoyable as it was and as much as I appreciated some of its pieces I felt like it, it ultimately came off as more a series of theater games and tasks than a fully realized show. But I, I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, for me personally, one of the, the sort of themes I saw emerging from a number of shows at the festival this year, if I had to sort of say like there was a thematic link between many of the shows, it's sort of about, um, I, I would, I use the term interpretation, mm-hmm. right? And there are the, many of these shows and this, both of the ones we've talked about uh, uh, very solidly do this are about, revealing the artistic process of interpreting whatever the, a, a text or an existing media and presenting that on stage. I mean, story number one is very explicitly about that. So they give you and, and, and that, that initial 45 minute video or whatever, it's, it's fascinating because like um, it, it's really bad reality TV show with a really snarky narrator mm-hmm. who's mocking them throughout it. So it's like really cheesy. But I mean, the fact that it's reality TV means that, you know, 
as hopefully, you know, sophisticated as most people have become about TV these days, we all know that in some way the drama is being manufactured. So mm-hmm. that although it's supposed to be real on the one hand, it's also not real. And we understand that through the media of how these events are presented and essentially the the prompts those individuals have been given and how they're depicted through the creation of the actual final program, though they're being fictionalized. And so then Rachel and Greg take upon themselves the option of further imagining what's actually happening to real people, which um, I totally appreciate what you're saying about how problematic that is. But I think that one of the things they're drawing a connection to is how problematic it is to consume reality television, which is the, the TV producers themselves also did the same thing to those people. And if Rachel and Greg's, and just so we're clear on these, one of them involves a, the lonely man being caught up what in a, a threesome, yes. like a, what are yeah with with a married couple. Another guy is the victim of a serial killer in, a, in an incredibly long segment where people left during that because you think it's going to end. And then they keep just describing the gruesome, slow process of him being killed. Comically, I would say, but it's no less troubling. You know, so they're taking a great deal of liberty. But, you know, I think that they're comparing that to the ridiculousness of the reality TV show. And then they're further, you know, sort of staging one another having to produce these tasks. I think that they're really fascinated by this idea and 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 Dickie Bowe in a very different way is doing the same thing of what does it mean for our theatrical art forms when we interpret some form of material? I mean, I think man watching is another play yes. that does the very much so um that was part of the festival it very much so did something similar um I'm not sure you know. Although although they're all linked by those things, I think they're all doing very different things with them. And I tend to agree with you. I, I was far more compelled by what Dickie Bo did than by, you know, what happened in, you know, story number one. But story number one was it was still a bit of an experience. Oh, absolutely. And I like I said, I left disturbed. And I think whenever that happens at a piece of live performance, you've been affected and that is a credit to the producers of that work. Yeah. And have been thinking about it and wanted to find someone to talk to about it. So yeah. thanks for joining me for this. Sure, no problem. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's 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 a strange piece. I felt like someone had actually told me that it was a work in progress, but I had a chance to ask, ask Rachel, and she's like, no, this is pretty much it. It's, it's pretty much done. Um, well, and, I wonder if there's a story number two or something yeah, to that effect. Right. Um, yeah, they could create a. It could be like a model for for doing this further. Um, but yeah, I mean, what? And I actually asked her like how hard it was to find that particular episode. I mean, I've never seen that TV show. Turns out it's real, um, and indeed, uh, it was one of the first ones they they looked up, and it just happened to be this in- incredibly. I don't know. They are. A, they do make for a compelling quartet. I sure. mean, one of them is one of them was a minor pop star from like 1989, and you know, um, and my favorite part is that the YouTube and I haven't looked this up to confirm though. She claims it's true. The YouTube uh, that they ripped the uh, video from actually misspelled with in the name of the show. Come dine with me. Like the 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 T and the H are transposed. And, I'm, and she told me that's real from it. She said that actually it wasn't until they were working with it and playing that video for other people that they noticed that apparently the producers of the show misspelled the name of their own show when they uploaded it to YouTube. Yeah, I noticed that on the screen. I didn't know if it was. She claimed that it was the, not intentional. The joke uh, they did or not. not. Do it. Yeah. 
I did think it was interesting that the manner in which the one character is killed by the serial killer mirrored to some extent the way in which that individual had prepared the lamb in the show. Well, there was a that's part the, of me that thing, considered right? whether this was like actually a commentary on like the consummation of animals, but I I dispensed with that idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I wondered if there was going to be a deeper point to any of it. I don't think there. By the time you get to one of them's actually is an alien, a space alien. I don't think that they were going for too much additional content or meaning in those those imagined texts. You know, like, um, and and just for the 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 record, I don't think it was just the lamb. I mean, I, I, it, they they kind of try to cook him alive, but then when, and you think he's just gonna die now, but then. But they make yeah, they make yeah. they make the whip custard in his eye socket by whipping his eye. I mean, it's it's like <laughs> grotesque. One of the person who left during that portion of the show, I believe, was fleeing for fear of like throwing up on the floor. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. And I have to admit, you know, there was a bit of a tragedy in Austin that week, um, oh, where right. where um, apparently a completely random murder of a student at the UT theater department had happened um like monday and so there was a part of me that w- while i was listening to that particular section of the show i'm like wow this is like it, it, it you know i don't know i don't deal with a lot of uh, violent death in my life so um it was one of the first times i'm like wow this does feel a little pushing the envelope for how this community probably feels right now it was um so there was that added dimension to it and i sort of worried and like you know are there students here who are listening to this horrible thing and one of their classmates was just a victim of a random violent crime? Um, did you see Rachel's other show at the festival? I did not get a chance to see it. Yeah, um, it was fairly well put together. Um, I didn't like it as much as story number one. Um, basically, she it's it was, um, I'm forgetting the name of Our it. Our Carnal Hearts, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. So it's performed in the round and she sort of, it's sort of performed as a... Uh, um, uh, sermon, right? And she's sort of serving as this uh, preacher who's talking to us about, you know, um, I forget exactly how she framed it, but it's very much so about what we want and getting what we want out of life and like how morally and ethically in the modern day we're not supposed to um, reveal how greedy we are, but we all know secretly we're greedy. And it was it was very beautifully done. Um, there was a four-part por- four uh, vocal chorus seated amongst the audience who sort of served as the choir performing along with her. And it was very funny. Um, <clears throat> it was very interesting. I think it lost its way towards the end. I know a lot of people really liked it, but I personally preferred story number one to Our Carnal Hearts. I saw her speak on one of the artist panels, and she just seemed wonderful. I enjoyed everything she yeah. had to say in that setting. So I look forward to seeing more of her work. You raised man-watching. I do want to talk about that. That was a project of the Royal Court Theatre from London. Um, In it, uh, an anonymous but well-established female playwright has written a monologue to be delivered by a male comedian. The catch being the male comedian has never seen the monologue prior to entering the stage at the performance. The monologue is about uh, female sexual desire, and it's written in a way that is rarely seen on stage or in pop culture or any culture for that matter. I thought it was fascinating. The comedian who delivered it at my performance did a great job. Of He, he was totally game for it. He really... Um, he 
ad-libbed at times where he found information surprising and their reaction from the audience combined with the comedian's own experience made me realize wow people have no idea what's going on with female sexuality <laughs> in Can our I culture at all saw okay. i saw it I want to say Friday evening. Okay. So you, I believe, saw it at a performance where something went awry. Is that correct? Well, that's what I was told privately by somebody. That, um, I believe, has been explained publicly now. Okay. Yeah. Um, Deb Pearson, uh, uh, who also performed as mm-hmm. part of the festival, um, she told me, that she's like, oh, you should try and go back and see it because apparently they left a few pages off at the end. Yes. So the night I saw it, it ended after about 40 minutes and... Somehow it just happened to be a page break where no one was quite certain. Like it felt like it ended early. Mm. Even and the comedian, like just so I, I assume this is similar. Um, like when the comedian enters the space, he doesn't actually have the script. Right. And like three different audience members have been given an explicit instruction of how he can find where the script is. Um. So he literally got to the the last page that I, I saw it, and he stands up. He's like okay, where's the rest of it, guys? And he expected there to be another series of tasks he had oh, to complete. Wow. And so it went on for a few more minutes before he's like, okay, if no one can tell me where this is, um, he just stops and sort of bows and walks out. It, it was it was actually a really interesting way for it to end. But I do understand that I missed several pages. I don't know if that was ever like announced, but I was told that privately the next day. And um, yeah. The... <clears throat> The writer of the script uh, discusses at the beginning of the script about why it is she's chosen to remain anonymous, how she feels like if were she to be associated with this script, she would just become the sex writer. And that's all anyone would ever think about her. Mm -hmm. And she wouldn't be able to get out of that box, no matter how diverse her existing repertoire or future repertoire were. And... It, it's a it's a really interesting question to ponder in the context of a, perf- a performance festival like this, where there are so many uh, ways of examining sexuality on the stage. I mean, just constantly, you're not going to go to a performance festival where those questions aren't asked. And I thought this was a really interesting entry into that space. And like I said, it did make me think that there's I mean, I obviously, as a woman in society, already know there are limitations on a woman's ability to express her sexuality. But in the artistic space, you think of that as being freer. Like there's more opportunity to be explicit and to say, to speak your truth. And yet this woman who, according to her own description, is fairly well established, fairly well respected in the space, did not feel she had the uh, credibility or the, the 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 credit to expend or I don't know exactly I mean I don't want to put words into her mouth but there was a limitation on her ability to fully explore what she thought was a topic that needed exploring and I couldn't agree more with her on that point um, it was just fascinating to see a man stand up and to say these things about women's desire and women's sexual fantasies um, to do so totally unprepared and taken by surprise. And I do think that towards the end, it does become actually more explicit. Um, I think there's sort of a crescendo right towards the end. And then there's a really funny conclusion where um, the comedian describes uh, what the, 
I don't know what you would call it, but the like the casting notice for the role <laughs> and <laughs> and what that uh, what that was like and how that and how this person who's standing on stage before us must have responded to that casting notice. What was the casting notice? That's was, what I missed. I can't remember exactly. But Did he have to be really attractive? Funny. Yeah, I think it. I think it. I think it suggested something about a level of attractiveness. Right, because that was something else the, the the writer brings up in the text. It's not just she does say that you know that she would be known exclusively as the sex writer if she were publicly associated with it. But she also says that you know she doesn't. She's like, I know you're all imagining whether or not I'm attractive yes. right now. Yes. Um. So I was so I was curious about what the you know and she and she's like she's like you know and then she has to talk about she tries to evaluate her own attractiveness. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, yeah, it was so I was curious about, you know, I'd heard that there was a bit more of an explanation towards the end about these choices. And I was curious uh, what that was with the guy who has to perform it. I mean, I find it strange. Um, I I'm compelled by the idea. I couldn't help but wondering. And I guess maybe it's the point that it's sort of strange to take a woman's experience, which you're acknowledging is not normally permitted to be discussed and instead relying on a man to do it when your point is that men get to do that naturally. So uh, uh, there was a part of me that's like, wait a minute, is this revealing something or is it actually relying on the same, you know, patriarchal power structure that she's critiquing? I think both. I think by putting those words in the voice of a privileged male that you are hopefully allowing people to hear them in a way that they wouldn't were there a female speaker of those words and of course he's not going to be known as the sex guy right Right. like i mean you know philip roth can write novels about you know masturbation and masturbation and masturbation and he's still not going to be known as this he kind of is i guess known (laughs) as a sex writer but um not one that's particularly sexy but like you know like there's that like as you you mentioned it's like it's certainly a privilege right so she's exploring the, the sort of privilege that a male gets to uh, have to talk about their sexuality versus a female's what she kind of talks about there's that great story where she talks about when she's like 17 outside of a cinema and her, she's listening she's with two female friends and two male friends and she's again listening to them these two guys talk about masturbating and she eventually gets the two females she's with to join her in acknowledging that they masturbate <clears throat> So, yeah, um, I think it's embedded in the DNA of that show, these sort of power issues relating to gender and sexuality. But, um, yeah, I was sort of I was sort of provoked. And there was something about it that maybe just I don't know. There was something about about it that I I sort of it was I felt it was like something askew. And I've never been able to quite put my finger on why I didn't really ultimately like the idea or had some problem with it. But. By the same token, I didn't get to see the end, so I never got to actually see the conclusion of it, which maybe would have dramatically affected the way I received it. Yeah. Okay, the last show I want to talk about, and I don't know if there are other shows you want to talk about, but I really wanted to mention The Rude Max Field Guide. I Mm -hmm. assume you saw that. I did. It is a a deconstruction of the Brothers Karamazov uh, with, in typical Rude Max style, interspersed with personal confession and... um, stand-up comedy and of course also dance breaks um this was at their space the off center which i'd never been to before had you been there before yeah yeah which they are losing um in quite tragic fashion come next year yeah and- there's a lot of changes i mean we could we could continue talking about the 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 challenges facing our, our austin's um theater community i mean salvage vanguard uh where several of the shows we've talked about were performed that 
space is being lost and i think they're they're taking another one though they have the funds to to find another space but they're still being displaced from their current home of many years the off center is being lost and the fusebox festival itself um is launching a program called think east Mm -hmm. um which is sort of a long-term i i hesitate to even try and explain it from my perspective but what they're trying to do is to find a way to um make art part of the development process and 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 to reframe it as an important part of community so that it can receive more um stability and like the fuse box itself might ultimately provide space or resources to artists who are essentially being forced out as austin rapidly grows and gentrifies um, driven by the, the the technology industry, much like in San Francisco or even parts of New York. So, yeah. Yes. I mean, we complain in New York all the time about losing performance space. That's clearly happening in Austin as well. One would hope that the thing that has given Austin so much of its identity and vitality being its performing arts music scene would be appreciated. I mean, you can't even go to a donut shop in Austin without there being a stage in the room. So yeah. it seems like uh, hopefully hopefully that survives. I, I was inspired by that Think East initiative, which sounded a bit like at its height would be some kind of Disneyland in East Austin where all performance art could gather and, and perform and have performance you know, performance and also rehearsal and space and office space and all those wonderful things. It's hard to imagine what it could actually be, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that when I was there in 2012, we arranged um, uh, a public discussion about what it meant to make art in a place and like how the resources that are available to you in a community really shape the work you make. Mm -hmm. One of the things, you know, we worked with, I believe the local Austin arts council, I forget the name of the actual organization, but we were talking with them and one of their, initiatives which caught me so off guard was they were saying we're working on how to help artists develop community without a permanent place because people are being displaced and we know that we need to figure out ways to develop community and engagement for the long-term health of the organization the theater company the presenter whatever at the same time we acknowledge that the the place that that'll be might be radically shifting so it might not be in your neighborhood anymore like how do you create an audience and a community around work when it can't even be located in a neighborhood because it's changing so rapidly that they might be displaced. And that really caught me off guard because, you know, and it made me think about how sort of lucky I was before I moved to New York, even I was in Seattle and without going too deep into it, you know, in Seattle, many arts organizations avoided that displacement. Many have been, but many others avoided it partially because of a complete accident involving tax revenue that was dedicated to paying off a football stadium, which got which pumped about $4 million into the local uh, King County arts um, economy each year and allowed that, in, that organization called For Culture to help back loans to buy spaces. Mm. And without that, and it was purely because tax revenue against some bond measure to pay for a football stadium had come in higher than anticipated, um, many of the most important uh, arts institutions in Seattle would have likely been forced out of neighborhoods like Capitol Hill, which have rapidly gentrified like parts of Austin. And so it's like something as simple as an accident like that that protects and gives, you know, the the space, you know, and, and so... Looking at Austin, where they weren't fortunate enough to have that, and watching them try and deal with that, like how you raise capital, how you get a capital campaign to buy a building, mm-hmm. and whether or not it's worth buying a building. Um, you know, in New York, we've seen many organizations that were essentially bankrupted by choosing to buy. Right. 
So it's a really complicated set of questions. And, I, and, and the long-term health of Austin's arts are going to be is going to be defined by how well they deal with that. It's clear at this point. But I think I've I think I've led us way off course from talking about the <laughs> off center and the rude mechs. They've Field had a, guide. What yeah. did you think? I you know I was not a huge fan of it. I didn't oh, feel really? it was I didn't feel it was a remotely finished yet. I couldn't yeah. tell you. There's no why. In fairness, I, it is very much a work in progress. Yes, and I think that that does need to be. Um, reiterated you know one of the things is i forget where it's actually ultimately supposed to go um, it's in connection with the yale rep i don't know if they're is that where it's supposed to end up i think that's what i heard i don't know if that's public but um i think it's supposed to be a commission from yale rep that is and, public information oh, for sure. okay good. i mean yeah. i know that so it must be public yeah. i was not sure that on the I, God, yeah okay yeah i mean who knows with this stuff but um yeah i know and and i know and it, it's interesting like so you know they develop work um, at home in Austin, where they mm-hmm. have an amazing facility. It's basically a converted barn or something or yeah. giant parking garage called the Off Center. Um, and, you know, they're able to do a full month run of it as a work in progress, which is a great opportunity. It's not the sort of thing most people in New York would be able to have the chance to do. As for the show itself, though, uh, yes, it's a work in progress, but it, I felt like it needed to answer this question of like, why? Why this piece? I don't. I, I, I'm curious as to what your response was because I couldn't quite parse, like, I didn't see why they would even want the relationship between, there were these moments in it that were quite interesting. The personal confession, mm-hmm. the comedy, which plays very much so on similar themes that we were talking about, about, you know, what is truth and what is fiction. Mm-hmm. I don't know if actually a couple who were both in that show had broken up because he was, they were in an open relationship. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But those moments were interesting. The song was interesting. The stand-up comedy was interesting. But these were sort of interspersed with an attempt to tell the story of the brothers Karamazov, the relationship between those elements, the 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 novel and those. I I can't put my finger on. I've been struggling with it, and I just I I haven't figured it out. So I'm curious as to what your response was. Well, I can't disagree with your critique of those two elements not seeming to relate tightly but i just thought it was so fun and lively and it's just i find their performances to be so engaging just on a interpersonal level and that i enjoyed that the personal confessional element seemed to be a continuation of stop hating yourself which was at lincoln center did you see that i did not get a chance to see that one so in that show which is very much a critique of like capitalist economic structure they come up with these personal confessions about um their own sort of connection and perhaps uh benefit from of the capitalist system and how yeah. they've it's become um, a part of them and it's hard to shake, um, and so I really enjoyed that this seemed to be building on that. Yeah, and it's just lively and entertaining and it, throughout the piece and also I believe in materials that one is handed prior to entering the performance space. They do say repeatedly do, do you know what's happening is is the plot of this clear and to which i was like no 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 i have no it's idea literally what a you're question. doing what you're saying is that there's literally a questionnaire in the program you yes. get right do like you, it's, were it, you able to follow the plot do yeah. you want to be able to follow the plot do you need to be able to follow the plot and i kept thinking like nope can't follow anything 
but um, still totally entertained and having a good time. Yeah, it was entertaining. I just, I don't know. There was a part of me that wanted a lot more from it. And, yeah, you know, I see how maybe your background as a dramaturg could influence your perspective on seeing a show like that and wanting more. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, one of the uh, one of the shows I've seen in the last, like, five years that's really stuck with me was their, their Method Gun, yes. the show The Method Gun, which I thought was phenomenal. So it's also partly that, and I'm sure they struggle with this, it's like you can't always make a show that good. And, and so, right. like, you go like i went in with with very high expectations for this piece um because it's only the uh, is this the second third uh third piece i've seen by them the one of them the other one i saw was their reperformance of dionysus in 69 um so it's not really their own show they were just doing richard Schechner's from you know his bizarre hippie-ish you know blah 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 and I missed the one at Lincoln Center, which I heard mixed things about. Um, but, yeah, so I went in and, you know, I had these high expectations. And it, you know, I I, I, I hope to get to see it once they're done developing it, to see where it goes, you know, because they do have very interesting voices as artists. I was kind of mildly provoked by the set choices they made, the set design, Um and I'm just curious to see how it ultimately turns out. Um, they're, they're certainly a talented group of artists. I'm just not, I'm not, I'm still not, I don't know the why of this show. I couldn't tell you why they brought in all of these elements. And sometimes, and you know, it's, it's interesting. It got me, it did get me thinking, you know, sometimes, and I've noticed this particularly uh, with solo performers, when you see a work in progress, one of the things you really see that, that's revealed because it's not finished yet, and the artist who's presenting it hasn't smoothed the rough edges, is you see um, the artist grappling with the relationship of the truth and how they're turning truth into their style mm-hmm. and their, their aesthetic presentation. And actually, when it comes to like solo, because many solo shows are often about fraught material, it can actually be, I, I get really uncomfortable sometimes in those situations because you're seeing the violence that art and aesthetic is doing to the, this truth. Like the artist is trying to figure out a way to convey to you something very meaningful to them. Um, and I, I, I guess kind of like maybe my discomfort was watching that happen a little in the Rude Mech show because it's sort of like when you start to see how those elements come together, you start to see it's like, oh, you're, you've decided, like some, in this case, it might be as simple as you've decided to add something to this performance and you're going to backtrack into making it make sense. And the fact that I don't see it as making sense, like, and, and, and ultimately I want to see the final version because I want to see if that's the result of an intuitive leap they've made um, that was ultimately productive. Like why these sort of personal confessions and these stand-up comedy, like, like what does that really add to their exploration? I think someone told me based on um, prior workshops they've done, that one of the things they were really fascinated by was um, exploring character types based on each of the main the brothers and the father like Mm -hmm. the intellectual um the religious ascetic the uh uh you know completely sort of falstaffian indulgent um you know all of these different things being explored as these sort of iconic character tropes and i'm curious it will be interesting to see if these additional the personal elements the stand-up whatnot whether or not that was an intuitive leap they made which will ultimately reveal something powerful about that or whether or not they'll just sort of smooth over the rough edges and you'll see it again and it'll be just sort of like it's like ah you just did shtick like this is like (laughs) maybe maybe this some of this stuff is just rude mixed shit shtick 
and it'll be interesting to see that. I don't I don't mean that to be com- as as negative as it probably sounds, but it is it is interesting to sort of grapple with that, I think. So, I'll be curious. Is there any other show you wanted to mention? Um No, I mean, we touched on, I think, all of the ones that I was uh, most provoked by. I mean, you know, I closed out the festival. Did you get to see Batman? I didn't because I wasn't there on Sunday, but I was very Uh, curious about that. Explain that show. um, Well, it turns out bats are very iconic. I believe they're called the Mexican, some sort of bat, little small uh, bats that eat insects. And they're apparently an icon. This third third trip to Austin, never heard this. There is, uh, I believe it's the College Street Bridge. There's like a colony of more I than a capital. Cap, one or the other. Don't quote me on this. You can <laughs> anyone can Google this online because apparently it's a big thing. Like the bat is like a de facto icon mm-hmm. for Austin. There's like um, a, a colony of over a million bats living under this bridge. Um, and actually, there's a park you can go to, to and to watch them come out. And indeed, people, it's like a tourist attraction. So the every enti- night, every night, yeah. And so when we were there, I mean, I think many of the people had just shown up to see the bats and were very confused about what was going on. Um, But basically, I think the the artist's name was Steve Moore, and he worked with a choral group and other musical artists who, um, uh, to sort of create just sort of a symphony using um, different eco-location devices and and sort of this build, um, uh, sort of inspired by the pinging bat sounds um before they came out and so you just sat there in a group of people as this sort of sound score happened around you and then at dusk the bats start coming out and it was it was a beautiful moment i wasn't sure how well it came together in a a certain way like i think that they struggled to predict when the bats would come out and i couldn't help but wonder if all the noise hadn't sort of scared the ones closest (laughs) to us because like they were decidedly coming out like a few arches down the bridge over the river but ours were not um, but it was beautiful and I love bats. They're very cute. So it was a really fascinating, it was a fascinating, it was a great way to end it too, because it was so sort of large scale. And like, I know that Ron really believes in hybridity and sort of like how art relates to the community. So to have it in the middle, like, you know, we talk about, you know, the entire festival being free, but this is, was a performance that sort of emerged. I mean, it would be like encountering some, uh, a fascinating, uh, uh, experimental performance in the middle of Times Square. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of got me thinking, like, maybe we should create a show where we get all, you know, uh, costumes and go around and do a performance like that because it was really remarkable to see how it emerged from an existing event that people were invested in rather than having to go to a theater. You know? It sounded great. I was yeah. sad I missed it, especially because this is my first time visiting Austin. And one afternoon... We were driving around, and there were all these people lined up on the bridge, and I was like, what's going on? Yeah. Those are the people there for the Bat Show, not for Batman, the performance. They just come every night to see these, I guess, million bats. But I looked it up so we can make sure we give the correct information. So it's the Congress Avenue Bridge. Congress, not capital, not college. Yep, but we knew it started with a C, and the artist is Steve Parker. Steve Parker. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining. This was great. Thank you for having me. I really wanted to talk more in depth about the festival. I thought it was so fun and I plan to go back. Do you plan to go back? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not my first time and I hope it's not my last. Um, Austin's a fun fun town, too. Great food, wonderful people. So, yeah. Yeah. Lots of good donuts and ice cream I found. Also, tacos. Breakfast tacos are a (laughs) gift from a kind of malevolent god. I love breakfast tacos. 
I don't really understand why breakfast tacos haven't spread outside of Austin. It it's seems to be a weird. really unique delicacy there, and yet they're not complicated. Yeah, no, I don't know, but they're great, you know. Queso, I mean, oh god, food scene's great. I don't the, know. The migas, I got really into that. Did you have any of that? No, what's that? That's the like baked eggs with tortillas in them and peppers. Oh, no, I've never had that. The migas breakfast taco is perfection on a oh, plate. Okay, wow. Yeah, I highly recommend. N- mental note for next time I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we would be so grateful if you would leave a comment and a rating on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. You can find us all on Twitter if you have questions or comments. Maximu is at M-A-X-A-M-O-O. Jeremy is at Jeremy M. Barker N-Y. That's J-E-R-E-M-Y-M-B-A-R-K-E-R-N-Y. And I'm at Lindsay Barron's L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z. We'll see you next week.